0: Amen. I want to read uh, from the book of Luke. This is a passage of Scripture that is probably the, uh, the, the, the essence of the whole Christmas story, at least as we think about it normally in our culture. Uh, this is the story that the manger scenes are created from. This is the story that a lot of our Christmas songs are created from. Uh, this is the passage of Scripture that is most traditional most traditionally associated with the Christmas story, at least as we ordinarily think about it in this culture. In fact, I'm going to read from the King James Version. I normally don't do that, uh, but the, a lot of our, our Christmas sentiment and the, Christmas, uh, the, the lyrics of, of a lot of our hymns come from the King James Version. So we're going to get very traditional here and read the King James Version. Luke chapter 2, verses 7-15. through 15. It says, And Mary brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I can almost hear Linus on Charlie Brown's Christmas story reading this. It's just so traditional. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, that's not the opposite of high, that's the King James Version of behold, or look look, look at this. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, Maybe it does mean he swung down low. I don't know. But, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. Sore is the King James word for very. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Men is the King James word for humans. I just thought you'd want to know that. Um, So here we have this traditional story. Now, here's here's the question I want to ask. We believe in, in, in hitting reality here and just being real. And so I don't want to rain on anyone's Christmas party, but but it's so important that we are real with everything. And the question I want to really ask this morning is this: What has this story got to do with reality? Peace on earth, good will toward people. Where is it? So there's this little boy, Johnny. I we'll call him Johnny, and he he's watching the evening news with his parents. And the evening news here for the six-year-old. The evening news, as it often is, is is full of violence, it's full of war, it's full of mayhem, it's full of crime. These are the things that get get reported on. The parents don't think that little six-year-old Johnny's picking up any of it, but six-year-olds often do. Later on that night, it's around Christmas time, so the mother reads Johnny this, this passage of Scripture. And Johnny asks, Mom, well, why did Jesus come to earth? And and Mommy says, well, as the passage says, to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men and joy to the world for all people. And Johnny thinks about the evening news and is a little bit puzzled and says, is he going to try again? Mommy says, why do you ask that? (coughs) And Johnny says, because it obviously didn't work the first time." Check this out. child come and put him there in the manger and see if there's some fresh straw that can keep him warm. I'll take care of her poor girl. Traditional Christmas video. I grant you that. But this piece that Brian put together here um, expresses so uh, forcefully, forcefully, if that music didn't wake you up, I don't know any kind of music that would wake you up. It expresses forcefully this, this question. What has this cute, serene, nice, sweet little manger scene to do with the real world? On the one hand, you've got, uh, you, you've got the peace of the Christmas story. On the other hand, you've got the conflict of the real world. You've got the announcement of great joy to all people, but you've got the despair of the real world. On the one hand, you've got the serenity, the cuteness, uh, the the nice feelings of this Christmas story. On the other hand, you've got a world that's ransacked with war and anything but nice feelings. On the one hand, you've got December 25th. On the other hand, you've got September 11th. And the question we've got to confront head-on is this. What do these two things have to do with one another? What on earth was the angel meaning when he said that this child will bring peace on earth, goodwill toward all people? What was he talking about? Because the world's not filled with peace, and the world's not filled with goodwill. We've got wars going on all over the place. We've got conflict and bloodshed going on all over the place. Uh, We've got Afghanistan, as we all know about. We've got the bombing of the World Trade Center. We've got Jews and Palestinians in perpetual conflict without any human uh, discernible uh, uh, prospect of hope coming. Bethlehem, the very town that Jesus was was born in, is uh, a war zone right now. But we don't just have conflict on a a national level. We have conflict on a tribal level in Zimbabwe and Nicaragua and areas of Africa. And in its own way, manifesting in racism throughout America and other parts of the world. Where is the peace on earth? And where is the peace on earth on a human level? I had to help facilitate the institutionalization of two people this this, uh, last week who cracked up. Where is the peace? Had to work with several families that are on the verge of, or have already blown up in conflict. Where's the peace? And it's not just about peace. You know, the, the angel, or we we celebrate that that, that uh, through Christ, sin and death have been conquered. But yesterday afternoon, had to do the funeral of Kevin Olson, who went to be with the Lord. Uh, where where is the promise of the the angel there? And Mary announced in her wonderful song that he will feed the poor and and raise up the lowly. But 350 thousand kids are going to go without a meal today. Where are the promises of the Christmas story? And here's why this is so important. And I don't mean to rain on anyone's Christmas party, but we got to confront reality head on. Here, here here's the deal. You see, if if this Christmas message, this sweetness and the cuteness and the serenity of this Christmas story that we celebrate, if we can't integrate this into the harshness, the raggedness, and the pain of our real world, then the Christmas story gets filed in our brains like a nice fairy tale. It's just one of these uh, wouldn't-it-be-nice stories. It's one of these happy-ever-after stories. It's one of these rags-to-riches stories. It's one of these frogs-to-princes kind of stories. It's nice, it's cute, it makes us feel good when we read about it or go to a movie version of it. But it doesn't really interact with the real world. It's not really part of our, our ongoing experience. If we can't integrate the sweetness and the cuteness and the niceness of this Christmas story with the ragged-edged, pain-filled reality that we live in, then it never really impacts our life, even if we believe it's true. It gets filed as a form of entertainment. We go to movies that have happy ever after themes and once upon a time themes and rags to riches themes because we want to get away from reality. It's a form of entertainment. It, 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 It makes us feel good. We get goosebumps when we watch it, but it doesn't change our life. And so also, if the Christmas story is just seen as this sort of nice, cute thing, and we can't integrate it with the reality of the war zone in which we live, well, then it becomes kind of a form of entertainment, and that's exactly what it is for a lot of Americans. It's a cute thing that you think about once in a while. It's a break from reality. Let's spend once a year, maybe even twice a year, thinking about the cuteness and the sweetness and the quaintness of this Christmas story and how He came to show us love and bring joy to the world. Let's pretend like it's true. And maybe, in fact, you really do want to believe it's true, but the, the real world in which you live says it's not true. So what do these two realities have to do with one another? How do we begin to mesh them together? If there's a conflict between... Here's the point I want to make this morning, and I'm going to make it pretty straight. This isn't going to be your your normal Christmas message, uh, your stereotypical Christmas message. But then when have I ever preached a stereotypical Christmas message? If there's a conflict, if it seems like there's a conflict between the niceness and cuteness and quaintness of the Christmas story on the one hand and September 11th on the other hand, I submit to you it's because we're not reading the Christmas story close enough. We're getting caught in the cultural cuteness that we've wrapped the whole thing in the, the American lore, as it were, that has come up and surrounded the whole Christmas story. If we're going to press through to see the reality of the Christmas story, and, and see if we do that, what well, we'll find that it is not just in not in conflict with the real world. It makes the most profound statement about real, the real world. But if we're going to find the profoundness, we've got to cut through the cuteness. All right. To find the profundity of the Christmas story, you've got to cut through the cuteness of the Christmas story, and that's what I'm going to do here this morning. I'm going to cover three points. Point number one is I'm going to talk about the messiness of the Christmas story. Point number two, I'm going to talk about the ominous tone of the Christmas story. And point number three, I'm going to talk about the warfare theme of the Christmas story. And all three of these things are usually omitted in the the kind of American lore that surrounds the cuteness of the Christmas story. So let's talk about these three. Number one, the messiness of the Christmas story. I've uh, mentioned this before at in, in, in various times, but it's worth repeating. We like to really tidy up the whole Christmas story. We like it clean. We like it nice. We like it civil. We like it proper. We like it fairy tale like and so we've got the, the little baby Jesus who's, you know, just a perfect little baby. And even when the cattle are lowing and the baby wakes, uh, little Lord Jesus is no crying he makes. Right. And, and, and there's Mary who is just calm and serene and reverent. And there's Joseph who's calm and serene and reverent. My golly, even the, the cows and the donkeys are calm and serene and reverent. And the hay is nice, nice and neat. And you've got the, the wise men who are there calm, serene, and reverent with their, with their gifts. And you've got the shepherd who are all cleaned up like shepherds usually aren't. And, and they're there to offer, you know, to, to just pay homage to the king. And the star's overhead, and it's all so nice, and it's all so wonderful, and it's all so quaint, and it's all so cute. And it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. The trouble is, there's no way it would have happened like that. It has nothing to do with reality. In fact, as Luke wrote this passage, the original audience who read this would have been rather horrified by this whole thing. You see, let's enter into it a little bit. You, you've got a teenage girl, Mary. She's probably 13 to 16 years old when this is happening to her. I, you know, most 13-year-olds, I don't want to go there. I'll say it for tomorrow night. Uh, but okay, look at it, She's pregnant. Uh, being that age, getting pregnant kind of a wild trip in the first place but if this is a virgin conception you're going to have a young lady who's going to have some sorting out to do okay and uh so here she is she's pregnant with child and now they've got to travel 3 months to bethle or three three day journey to bethlehem while she's 9 months pregnant very close to terminating this uh, uh to, to 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 giving birth to Jesus and she's traveling on a donkey going to bethlehem Three-day journey, that can't be pleasant. Now, see, we look back on the whole thing and we think it's all planned. It's all such a nice story. But remember, Mary hasn't heard from an angel for a long time now, all right? It's been about eight, nine months uh, since that first announcement, maybe even longer. I'm sure at this point she's wondering, where is God in all of this? This doesn't feel like a God thing. They get to the inn. The inn is overcrowded. There's no place for them. And now it really doesn't feel like a God thing. She starts to go into labor, How do you know that? Well, because they had to find the closest thing available to to lay down on to give birth to a child. And the only place that's available is the stable where they keep the animals. Now, if the inn is overcrowded, you know the stable is overcrowded. And what I can tell you about stables in, in those days is that no one took care of them. No one bothered to clean them. You put your animals in there and forgot about the thing. So they go into this overcrowded stable. It was like a cave, or a hole in the side of a mountain. That's how the stables usually were in those days. No ventilation, in other words. They find a corner where Mary can lay down and she's going into the ever-increasingly intense contractions, and here they're going to have the baby. They push the animals aside. No one's cleaned this thing for a while. The, the hay is not going to be crystal clean. It's not going to be all pure. And ho- There's manure everywhere and the stench everywhere. There's filth everywhere. And here they're going to have this baby. Now Joseph has not had any Lamaze classes, hasn't had the course, hasn't seen the movie, hasn't read the book. He's never even had sexual relationships with his wife. And, and, and having seen this myself a couple of times, I went through the classes. I did the kind of thing, you know. I knew how to do it, twenty five, forty two, what I and it still freaked me out. I mean it's just a freaky kind of a thing. They've never been through this before. There's no dress rehearsal here. You know, and it makes me wonder, let's get real here, how, how do you know what to do with the umbilical cord? What would you put the placenta? How would you clean up the blood? I mean, it's a messy kind of a thing. And women know this, they didn't have any episiotomies in those days, didn't have any epidurals in those days, didn't have any narcotics in those days. This was a pure, uh, she felt every bit of this labor, it would be a really scary affair. Not nice, clean, and pure, and holy, whatever. You've got to picture Mary, Mary stressed out, Joseph stressed out, the baby stressed out, the cows and the donkeys really stressed out because they're taking up their space. Manure, then they wrap the baby in these rags and put him in a feeding trough. That's what the little manger thing is about. It's a feeding trough. It wouldn't be pure. It wouldn't be this nice, clean, wonderful sort of a thing. It would have been chaos. It would have been stressful. It would have been dirty. And see, we've got to cut through the cuteness of of the the ordinary story to get to the profundity of the real story. Because see, the profound point is this. God isn't, this isn't some fairy tale we're talking about. This isn't a nice little cute once upon a time thing that we're talking about. We're talking reality here, and reality often has got a rough edge to it, doesn't it? Reality often isn't just the way we'd like it. Reality often has got some ugly aspects to it. And the profound point of the the, the Christmas story is that God doesn't deal with fairy tales, He deals with reality. And when He comes into the world, He doesn't get a red carpet treatment. He doesn't get, you know, the best hotel. He doesn't get the, 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 the finest food. He he comes into the worst that the world has to offer. He comes into the messiness of the world. He comes into the manure of the world. He comes into the overcrowdedness of the world. He comes into the stench of this, this world because He's not a fairy tale God. He's a real God. And the profound point it means to us is this. It means that God is not a God who just deals with fairy tale kind of people the the, the righteous people, the holy people, the clean people, the manure free people the stench free people no God dives into the heart of real people who sometimes have a lot of stench in their life amen who 've sometimes got overcrowdedness with animals in their life who 've sometimes got manure in their life, and the point it tells me is this if god wasn 't too fairy-tale-ish and too clean and too, too above uh, getting involved in the manger scene as it really happened. He's not, too above, he's not above getting involved in my life. He comes into the dirty manger of my life, praise God. He comes into the dirty barn of my life. He comes into the overcrowdedness of my life. He's not a fairy-tale God who deals with fairy-tale pe- fairy people. He's a real God who deals with real people and he brings real salvation to the real people he comes into, praise God. But you've got to cut through the cuteness. If you're going to get to the profundity. The messiness of the story shows us that there's no conflict between the, the Christmas story and the ugliness of the real world. They're one and the same. The second thing is this. The ominous tone of the story. These other parts of the story that we usually leave out. We, uh, this is the part that we sometimes skip, or at least we don't notice, because it's not as cute as the rest of it. Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35 it says, then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, listen to this, this child, little baby Jesus, is destined, destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And is destined to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now look at this. Yes, there's an the announcement of great joy. Yes, there's an the announcement of peace on earth. Yes, there's the announcement of goodwill towards all people. And yet there is this uh, real-edged aspect to the story. It's not all going to be wonderful right from the get-go. Uh, there are many who are going to fall because of this child. There are many who are going to oppose. There's going to be warfare because of this child. And Mary, and this is so poignant and I'm sure Simeon is prophetically saying something here he himself doesn't fully understand, your own soul is going to be pierced, referring to the the coming crucifixion. The biblical authors didn't see this as a happy ever after story. They didn't have the expectation that with the coming of Christ, things were going to be uh, cleaned up right away. In fact, in some respects, the suggestion is that things might get a little bit worse. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, Herod the king saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Get the contrast here. It's the contrast that we're trying to get at with this video. Jesus comes, and they announce peace on earth, goodwill to all people, joy to the world. And the first thing that happens after he comes is a bunch of little kids get slaughtered. Do you see the conflict there? This is not a fairy tale. This is not a cute once upon a time, rags to riches, frog to prince kind of a story. Several dozen kids, so far as we can tell from archaeology and registers at the time, uh, it would have been several dozen kids uh, who were in Bethlehem at the time. They lost their life because of the opposition... The opposition that Simeon said was going to be there, the opposition to this child. You see, the, 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 there will be peace, there will be joy, there will be goodwill. But it, the biblical authors don't see this as happening right away. Uh, there's also going to be war, there's also going to be bloodshed. And throughout his ministry, Jesus confirmed this. He wasn't a fairy tale kind of Savior who was just kind of into positive thinking and giving nice little wonderful clichés to people to make their lives a little bit nicer and to make them a little bit sweeter. He said some hard things like, you know what? Because of me, because of my coming, some families are going to blow apart. Fathers against sons, mothers against daughters. It's not all going to be just wonderful and peaceful. And he tells his disciples that you can expect persecution, you can expect pain, you can expect trials and tribulations. He promises them that. They weren't surprised when that happened because they understood that the Christmas story isn't at odds with the harshness of reality. It's right in the heart of the harshness of reality, and it is the solution to the harshness of reality. Yes, peace. Yes, goodwill. Yes, joy. But there's also going to be conflict along the way. See, if, if God wanted to do it right away, He wouldn't have come as this little baby if God wanted to just instantaneously transform the world according to His will, He would have come as a cosmic Arnold Schwarzenegger, as we talked about in the last couple of weeks. He would have come in, in uh, flexing His omnipotent muscle and said, by golly, now we're going to get it my way. He would have come and He would have just decreed that it was so. He would have just reduced everyone's will into a will that agreed with Him and if there was a will that didn't agree with Him, He would have just bulldozed over Him. But the whole thing about the Christmas story is that God didn't come as a bulldozer, He came as this little baby. And the reason is because God doesn't want to squish us into His will, He wants to win us into His will, and that takes time. The omnipotent God, this is the, the, this is the, the, pretend like you never heard this before, because this is the heart of the outlandish, outrageous message of the Christmas story. The omnipotent God reveals His omnipotence and the vulnerability of this little baby. The glorious God reveals His glory in the dirt of the real manger. The, the, the exalted God reveals how exalted He is by becoming lowly and, and uh, allowing Himself to be pushed out into this stable, this, this cave. You see, God didn't come as an Arnold Schwarzenegger. He came as this little baby. The infinite God is revealed in the smallness of this little child. And the reason is because God doesn't want His get His, get his way by bulldozing over everybody. He wants to get His way by winning the hearts of everybody. So He doesn't come in His, over, in his overwhelming power. He comes in overwhelming love to win the hearts of all who are open to Him. That we would see His love. We would see the outrageousness of His passion. We see the outrageousness of His grace, and we'd say, yes, Lord, I will follow You, I will submit to You. That's how God's will gets done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's not an instantaneous thing. It's not a magical thing. It's not a fairy tale thing. It comes over time. It comes over time. Every biblical author expects that, yes, you announce that that, that there's joy to the world. And, and there is. But that doesn't mean that, that all is hocus-pocus wonderful. There's an intervening time of warfare and... Bloodshed. And that leads to the third point, third theme that's often overlooked in the Christmas story. And that's the military or the warfare theme of the whole thing. The warfare or military theme of the Christmas story. I bet less than three people in this auditorium knew this. I'm going to give you a little insight here. Do you know that there's a manger story, a Christmas story, in the the book of Revelation? And it gives a little bit different spin on this. It's found in Revelations chapter 12, which says this. It says that the dragon, then the dragon, the dragon has already been described as a seven-headed beast. Okay, and it's using typical apocalyptic imagery. It's kind of like surrealistic poetry. You know, you have to just take that into consideration. But here we have this ferocious seven-headed dragon, which is Leviathan in the Old Testament, which is simply an ancient way of thinking about Satan. Then the dragon stood before the woman right in front of her, who was about to bear a child. she's getting you know, going to bear a child. Here's this dragon, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. Isn't that cute? Isn't that quaint? And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God into his throne. I think it's referring there to the resurrection where the, the Lord was snatched away from the jaws of this dragon who was trying to devour him. So you get a very different picture of the manger scene here. I mean, what would happen in our culture? This is just uh, a thought. If, if we had a realistic picture of what the manger would have looked like with all the dirty, you know, hay uh, and all the residue of the birth process and all the stressed outness uh, that you would expect from Mary and Joseph, if our major scenes at Dayton's and, you know, Donaldson's and Marshall Field's had, had the real thing there, you know, and that ticked off animals and, uh, you know, I, and so you have all that. It's really, really messy. And then, right in front of the woman, there's the cows, there's a donkey, and then there's this giant seven-headed dragon, ah, just waiting to devour the child as soon as it comes out. Uh, And you walk along, and, and little Johnny sees the manger scene and says, Oh... Look at the cute little cows. Look at the donkey. Look at the beast. Now, what's the beast want to do? And Mother says, oh, he's going to devour the little baby if he can. You see, you wouldn't quite get this, this nicety and this cuteness and this greatness and this warm, fuzzy, fairy tale feeling over the whole Christmas story. The point is this. When the Lord comes into this world, it's real. And what's real is that there's warfare going on right from the get-go. The enemy wants to get at this kid. I think that's how he, used to, he was trying to do that with Herod. I think he rose up and incited Herod uh, to, to try to extinguish this thing. Now, why would the dragon want to devour the kid? Well, let's read on. First John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The Son of God was revealed for this, per, for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Okay? Apparently, the devil's got some clue. This can't be good news. The Son of God's come into this world. It's interesting, but the, but the enemy and demons know who, the, who, who Jesus is. They recognize him right away. You're the son of God. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And and the enemy suspects this can't be good news. I gotta gobble this kid up, you know, before he does some damage to my kingdom. Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen and fifteen. Since the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through the devil or that, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, praise God. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery... By the fear of death. Why did Jesus come? Mommy, why did Jesus come? Was it, as our culture says, to, to make us a little bit nicer and to make us a little bit sweeter and to remind us about how important love is? It does all that. I'm not against that. Don't think I'm a Scrooge. I'm really in the Christmas spirit this year. Watch. I, I, I'm, I'm happy. I, I, I love I love the Christmas story. It scene, interesting. Silent Night, Holy Night. I'm really in the Christmas spirit. But I also believe we've got to be very real about stuff. Why did Jesus come? Well, Johnny... It was to kick the devil's behind. It was to kick the devil's butt. It was to rout demons. That's why he came. You know, this, 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 what you've got to see here is this cute little cute little baby. Cute little baby. This wonderful, sweet little child. It is a mighty warrior of God. This little, cute little cub is going to be turning to be the Lion of Judah. I, a lion, a real tiger, this little cute little baby in the manger this this is god 's secret weapon this is god's weapon of mass destruction to the enemy kingdom and don't go feeling sorry for this enemy kingdom because every every terrorized little kid that's ever been terrorized in this world, that that enemy delights over. And there's no good found in that. And God knows that to free us, He's got to defeat the enemy, and that's exactly what He came to earth to do. He came to kick the devils behind. He came to be a weapon of mass destruction to the kingdom of darkness. Why? So He could set His people free, praise God, so that we could be liberated. We could walk with God. We could be free in God. This, this, this little cute little baby was God's Trojan horse, if you will. Uh, you know, the Trojan horse in ancient Greece. It looked like a gift, but really it was the fatal weapon. It looked like a gift, and it was a fatal weapon. The Lord comes not as Arnold Schwarzenegger, but as a vulnerable little child. And see, what the enemy's thinking here is this, and this is part of the whole plan, is, uh, is if he's human... If he's vulnerable, if he's in my domain, my realm of legal authority, then he's devourable. He's killable. And maybe, just maybe, this is my chance to get back at that creator that I've been rebelling against throughout all, uh, from from, from bygone ages. And so he thinks that this child can be devoured. And in fact, it looks for a moment like that's what happened, doesn't it? Jesus dies on a cross. It looks tragic. It looks like something went wrong. All the disciples thought that something went wrong. Because now it looks like the devil got his way. It looks like evil has conquered good and hatred has conquered love. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this. He says, If the princes of this world, if the principalities and powers and authorities and dominions, the whole enemy kingdom, if they had understood the wisdom of God, if they'd understood what God was up to, if they understood the plan of God, which they could not because His plan is motivated by love and they don't understand love because they're pure evil. But if they did understand the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why wouldn't they have crucified the Lord of glory? Well, if they would have understood the wisdom of God, they would have known it wouldn't work. Oh, you can devour that child perhaps for a little bit, but then it says in in Revelation 12, He gets snatched away. You can't hold Him down forever. Because the Bible says that after three days, He rose again from the dead. And when He rose again from the dead, He rose victorious. And what that means for us is this. The devil is defeated and we are freed. Praise God. The whole thing backfires on Him. Amen. 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 This is the most glory. this is the meaning of the Christmas story, you see. That uh, the whole thing, when Jesus died on the cross, our sins were nailed there with Him, it says in Colossians 2. And when our sin, all the things that separated us from God, all the things that we've ever done wrong, all the things that, that have given the enemy legal hold on us, when Jesus died, they died with Him, praise God. They were nailed to the cross they were extinguished they were annihilated as far as the east is from the west they are gone and that's why the bible says then in colossians 2 that the enemy has been disempowered his weapons have been taken away from him he is powerless over the children of god he is a defeated foe praise god he is vanquished praise god he's annihilated praise god he's got nothing on us anymore hallelujah that's why the Son of God came into this world, to, to finish up the battle that's been going on throughout the ages with forces of evil against God. Now there's two things you've got to know about this warfare, very important. Number one, In principle the battle is already done in principle everything that needs to be taken care of has been taken care of when God became a man and ministered as he did and died on the cross and rose from from the dead the battle in principle came to an end the devil is in principle defeated and the kingdom of God in principle is already here and God's joy is already here and God's peace is already here that's why the Bible proclaims it as being already here that's why we sing right now the devil is defeated right now we are blessed right now, sickness and poverty must cease because, in principle, it already has. But, point number two, because it's here in principle does not mean that it's perfectly manifested yet. The story itself tells us that there'll be this in-between time where the mustard seed grows, where what is in principle true becomes true in actual appearance. We're in this in-between stage. From God's perspective, who's been around for all eternity, I'm sure it's in a split second. He comes and the kingdom comes. But from our perspective, there's been a 2,000-year interval between, and for all we know, there might be another 2,000 years. I don't know. I doubt that, but there could be. But there's a time of growing. Look at what Hebrews chapter 2 says. In Christ, God is subjecting all things under their feet, referring to human beings. We were meant to be the lords of this creation... That's how we were originally created. And what what happens when we're saved, what happens when God's kingdom comes, is we're reinstalled as the rightful lords of this earth as we co-reign with Christ. That's the whole structure of the biblical narrative. So in Christ, all things have been subjected to their, our, feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside of their control. See, Christ is above all principalities and powers and dominions and authority. And we are in Christ. Where does that put us? Far above all dominions and principalities and authorities. Okay? So everything's been subjected to us in Christ. But all look way, the verse says. The, the Bible is real. The Bible is not Pollyanna. The Bible is not... Let's just you know, plug our ears and go la-la-la-la and pretend, pretend like it's all okay. The Bible's very realistic. It says this. As it is. As it is in the real world, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. They are subject, but we don't yet see that. It's in principle true, but it's not yet manifested fact. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for, every, for everyone. Everything is subjected to us. All believers, everything is subjected to you. You have victory in Christ Jesus. But, let's be honest, we don't yet see that. It's not yet quite clear. It's not yet perfectly manifested. Why? Because God didn't come as a bulldozer. He came as a little baby and He's winning people. He's building His kingdom by winning people over one at a time, heart by heart. By, by, by uh, revealing his, his love to them. So it takes time for this victory to be manifested. D-Day has occurred. The outcome is certain. There's no going back. V-Day, Victory Day, has not yet been manifested. The victory has been won, but it has not yet been perfectly applied throughout the world. In principle, it's been accomplished, but in manifested fact, it's not there yet. The devil has been dealt a death blow. He's bleeding to death. He's gasping for air, but he's still alive and still exercises the, uh, the authority that he had. We are redeemed children of God the minute you become a believer, in principle, the kingdom of God is in you, and you are a child of God. But it doesn't perfectly get manifested right away, does it? It says this in the book of John chapter three. "Beloved, we are the children of God. We are the children of God. There's no guessing about this. We are God's children now." That's what's real. What we will be has not yet been revealed. Okay, it's true now, but it it, it hasn't been totally revealed yet. It hasn't been totally manifested yet. The caterpillar has has turned into a butterfly, but it hasn't totally come out of the cocoon yet. What we do know is this. We see Jesus. When He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Okay, it's like this. I, 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 I know that in Christ... I'm holy. I know that in Christ I'm righteous, and so are you. I know that in Christ I'm filled with the Spirit, and so are you. I know that in Christ I ravish the heart of God. I'm altogether beautiful. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. I know that in Christ all things are under my feet. But I look at my life, and you maybe look at my life, but I'd rather you look at your own life, and uh, you don't see that all the time. I, I don't always feel like a, a, a child of God. Do you always feel like a child of God? I don't always feel like I'm more than a conqueror. Do you always feel like you're more than a conqueror? I don't always think like I'm a child of God. I don't always feel perfectly redeemed. I don't always act perfectly righteous. Most of the time, yes, for sure, huh? but not always. Now here's the question. Does that mean it's not true? Does that mean it's not true? No, no, no. See, precisely because it is true, I'm moving in that direction. You see? And, and the question is this. What are you going to give ultimate credibility to? Your experience or the Word of God? And, and what I know is this. Let God be true and every man. A liar even if that man is my own thinking. Let God be true. What is true is that in Christ Jesus we are redeemed. We are spotless. We are holy. We are above principalities and powers. That is in principle already true. But it takes some time for the butterfly to come out of the cocoon. It, makes the, it takes some time for it to be totally manifested. But know this, saints of God. It is predestined. It says in Romans that we shall be conformed to the image of God and that when He appears, we'll see Him just as He is in all of His beauty, in all of His radiance, in all of His splendor. Why? Because we're going to be just like Him, praise God. We're going to radiate with that same radiance. We'll share in that glory. We're sharing that love. It's true already in principle, but it's not yet totally revealed. And so it is with the entire world. The angel wasn't lying when he said peace on earth, goodwill to men, joy to the world, and all of that. That's not a lie. It's in principle true. The victory has been won. But you look at this world with all of its war zones, with all of its bloodshed, with all of its crimes, with all of its conflict, with all of its tears, with all of its death... And you say, how can it be true? How do these two things fit together? Look past the cuteness and get the profoundness of the whole thing. It is true already and grabbing onto that isn't in contradiction to the ugliness of the real world. It's the solution to the real world. It is the cure to the sin of the real world. It's part and parcel of the real world. Uh, You don't see the victory of God manifested just yet. It's not all clear uh, what uh, what it's going to look like when what the baby accomplished is going to be manifested, but we know that it shall be, praise God. And when it shall be, then then we'll see the world as God intended the world to be. Praise God. Then the kingdom of God will come. Then all hearts will align with God. Then all minds will align with God. Then the world will reflect the glory of the triune God that the world was originally created for. And I can tell you this, I long for this day that the whole thing about the Christmas story is to create in us a longing and expectation and desire to work for what Christ came to accomplish. I long for the day where I'm not going to do another funeral like I did yesterday. I long for the day where I'm not going to have to see one more wife who lost a husband and one more five-year-old who lost a father. It was never supposed to be this way. I long for the time where the Bible says He'll wipe away every tear from our eye. And there'll be no more sorrow and no more sickness and no more... Demonic cancer racking people's body. And no more malnutrition and no more hungry kids. I long for the day when the Jews and the Palestinians are going to hug one another. And the blacks and the whites and the Hispanics and the Latinos are going to hug one another as we get at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and glorify Him in union. That's how God wanted the world to be. And that's why Jesus Christ came, to put an end to the war. And now He's growing that victory, applying that victory. And before long, we'll see the whole thing as it was intended to be push past the cuteness and the quaintness and the serenity. I like cuteness. I like serenity. Don't. I'm not a Grinch. But what I really want is reality. And see, if you can tolerate the ugliness of the story, now you find the real beauty of the story. But you got to push past the cuteness to get there. We're in a war zone time here. And the, the, the already but not yet time here. And here's what you got to know and I'll close with this. Three things God calls us to. Number one, He calls all human beings to say yes to Him, to surrender to Him, to accept Him as Lord and Savior. This is what brings you in the kingdom. You maybe don't know this, but if you haven't uh, volitionally with your will said yes to Jesus Christ, you're part of a kingdom that opposes Him. You're part of the problem, not part of the solution. You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, Accept Him as Lord and Savior. Put your trust in the sufficiency of what He did for you by becoming a man and dying on the cross. To bring forgiveness in your life, you need to be forgiven. I don't care if you've been a churchgoer all your life. I don't care if you're a good deed-doer. That's not what it's about. What it's about is this. Do you know, really know, really know, have a personal relationship with the Lord of glory? Okay, and that's more than just a little acquaintance tipping your hat once in a while. It's, it's have you surrendered your life to Him? That's number one. Number two, if you've done that, the Lord calls us all to grow. We're, we're to become disciples of Christ. That means be disciplined ones of Jesus. This doesn't happen by accident. It only happens by intention. We are to, the, the expectation of the Bible is that we will be growing, we'll be developing, we'll be making progress in the Christian life, in, in the progress in faith, progress in our spiritual perception of things. So I would encourage all believers here to increasingly become disciples of the Word. Become uh, d- disciples in your prayer life. Become disciplined in, in your walk with God. Um, and, and, and be pursuing Him. If you need help on this, one of the reasons why we started the, the uh, St. Paul um, uh, Theological Institute is to offer classes for people to take, and we're registering right now. Take classes to grow in your spiritual life, grow in your understanding of the Bible, grow in, your, in, in the practice of spiritual disciplines. You can call Steve Underline if you want more information about that. But Jesus said, don't go forth and make this believers of all nations. He said, go forth and make disciples of all nations. So we're into the disciple-making business, and we're all called to be disciples. And number three, this war is going on. We're in the middle of the war zone. Our job is to be applying the victory of Christ everywhere at all times and all places. So ask yourself this question and pray about this. What is the role that you have in the kingdom of God? Now We all have a role in prayer, and we all have a role in sacrificially giving to see the kingdom of God go forward. But what is your ministry? You're a minister, and everyone has a ministry. And if you don't yet have a ministry, I would encourage you to pray about that. How would God use you in this warfare that is going on? This is what Jesus came to do, to, rise up, to raise up this army of people that would be uh, warriors on his behalf, proclaiming the victory of Jesus Christ in their minds, in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their workplace, wherever they go, whoever they meet, to be kingdom-building people. Uh, and if you have questions about that, I encourage you to see Pastor Jody for Formular, whose whole job is to help people get plugged into the ministry that best that best fits them. Now I can't do anything about number two this morning, and I can't do anything about number three this morning, but I want to end by doing something about number one. And that is this: I want to ask, I want to invite anybody who's here who has never really surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that involves confessing with your mouth, Romans 10, and believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the Bible says if you do that, you shall be saved. That's the beginning of the whole thing. That's what makes you a kingdom person. So as all believers, close their eyes and begin to pray. I want to end this message with this invitation. Is there anybody here who wants to do that? If that's simple, I'll lead you into a prayer. We'll all pray with you. I'm not going to call you up, but I just want you to raise your hand and say, yes, would you pray for me? I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. I want to join the kingdom of God. Yes, brother, I see that hand. Anybody else? A sister, wonderful. Praise God. You're saying, I want to become a warrior. Brother, br- sister, praise God. A number of people all over this auditorium. Wonderful. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Back there. What a great time, this time of year, when Jesus came in the throne. Sister, I see your hand up here. Wonderful. Over there, praise God. Saints of God, keep praying because the Holy Spirit's moving and is is causing hearts to yield to Him. Anybody else? Anybody else? Over there, amen. 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 Oh, brother, praise God. You just say, I I surrender. I'm giving up to Jesus Christ. I want to be Lord of my life. Over here. Wonderful. Wait one more moment. Anybody else? We had a number of people just surrendering their life to Jesus Christ. And this is the bottom line. This is the start of what makes you a kingdom person. In the middle here. And a little boy and a little girl, praise God. He's saying, I need Jesus too. You do need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And this is the way we come to him. Over there, a brother, I see the hand. Praise God. Bless you. The angels are just doing a jig right now because they love for they live for this. They love this. We're expanding the kingdom of God. Over here, little girl, I see your hand. And and back there, lady, I I, praise God, sister. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, what I want to do here is, I I may have missed some hands, and and that's okay. The Lord sees it, and that's all that's important. We're going to pray this prayer with you. Now, I want you to pray this like a wedding vow. I'm going to lead you in it. Uh, it's so simple, but it is simply a confession of what's on your heart. And it seals the commitment that you want to make. We're not playing church here. This is about joining the kingdom of God. This is about changing your life. It's about inviting Jesus into your life to do a revolutionary change. Praise God. So join with me. Let's all praise this together. Heavenly Father, you are God. You are creator. You are majestic. You are holy. You are king. And I confess that I am a sinner in need of your mercy. I confess that I cannot save myself. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into my life, to forgive my sin, to take over my life, to change who I am and to help me live for God the rest of my life. I surrender everything to you in Jesus' name. What are the angels doing right now? Let's join them. Welcome to the kingdom. Amen. What a Christmas present.